Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we have a proper episode. Uh, we were going to be talking about, let me, we're going to be talking about Italy leaving the Belt and Road. Uh, well, supposedly they're going to be leaving the Belt and Road. We'll see. We'll talk about Israel-Palestine, as we usually do, but then we'll get into news surrounding Israel-Palestine and how the narrative has shifted very decisively against Israel, and we'll get into what exactly that news is. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. And we'll start with what we got here. What we got here. We have US funding for Ukraine set to finally run out by the end of this year. Let's go. All right, let's give a round of applause. The money is finally coming to an end. Finally, 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 this thing is almost over, at least for us anyway. Uh, it won't stop the embarrassment and the humiliation from that L that we're going to take next year when the Ukrainian lines collapse and the Russians start walt- waltzing across the plains of Ukraine. But, you know, at least we won't be dumping more money into Ukraine. At least, so I hope. Right, so we have Ukraine funding coming to an end this year. The Supreme Court in Peru orders the release of the jailed ex-president. Uh, Hunter Biden was caught spending $4 million on hookers and blow. Uh, we have Zelay. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> now hold the hell up. What was that? Hunter Biden caught spending $4 million on hookers and blow. Unbelievable. <laughs> and he's not, he's a, this is a, a recent thing that came out of him is his trial. You know, they're, they're going to get him on the taxes, you know, not the crimes. So, you know. You could say that, oh, that they're getting him Al Capone style, or you could say that, well, they're getting him on the taxes so they don't have to own up to the, the other crimes because that would implicate a lot of other people. Uh, but yeah, sure, sure. Taxes, four million on crack? Huh? Illegal possession of a gun? Well, who was that? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, what, uh, and hey, didn't his father write the crime bill specifically to crack down on crack? And this guy's doing crack and. and you guys remember when he left crack on the White House lawn and and they, and they found crack in the white inside the white in a cubby? And, you remember that time Joe Biden resigned because he was tired of everybody doing crack? This is ridiculous. This who is this guy? He's the son of the of the most popular president ever. I'm sure. This guy's a. Uh, uh, actual menace to society and a menace to his own family. Goodness. So we're just going to move on from that. <laughs> we're just going to gloss straight over that. Um, uh, yeah, Zelensky is coming to visit us again on Tuesday. Isn't that great, guys? Don't. Uh, isn't that great? I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that we're not going to be giving them any more money. You know, just, just a thought, just thought. You remember, you remember that hundred billion dollar aid package that they wanted to pass? Well, with 
40 billion going to Israel and 60 billion going to Ukraine and how that it, it died in the house because they, they said, well, no, we're not going to give any more money to Ukraine. Uh, we're going to make cuts to the IRS, but hey, we're going to give 14 billion to Ukraine and then it died in the Senate. It, I can say definitively that it did die in the Senate. Thank the Lord Jesus. They did something useful. Now we'll see if a new bill comes up with the exact same amount of money and we'll see if all these people were just grandstanding when they voted against it. We'll see, you know, I wouldn't put it past these people. For as much as I'll tout the merits of the MAGA Republicans, they're still politicians. So you, know, you, have, to, you have to keep them at a nice arm's length away when it comes to trust. Trust is, trust and politicians don't go together. It's like water and oil or water and electricity for that damn matter. But yeah. We'll see if another aid package just so happens to pop up when some new crisis befalls Israel or Ukraine, and it just happens to slip through the so-called MAGA Republican Party and the MAGA, and the MAGA Speaker of the House, because, you know, they made a big deal about, what's his name, Mike Johnson, being the new MAGA Speaker of the House, even though his first priority was to give money to Israel and, you know, not to do anything for America, but, you know, no. uh, uh, am I going to hold it against him? Yes, I will. I'll never let him live it down. I'll never let it go. But... We'll, we'll see. This is another one of those wait-and-see type games. But at the very least, for now, something useful has happened, and that's that the aid package has been shot down like it should. Now, we'll see what happens from there. Uh, we have Iran, on the other side of the world, entering into a free trade agreement with the Eurasian Economic Union. So that's the sort of free trade bloc slash customs union that Russia has with a number of former Soviet states like Belarus, Kazakhstan. Uh, actually, let me go because I, I, I know I can name the CSTO by heart. That's the Collective Security Treaty Organization, so like a, a, a military bloc of former Soviet states. But I actually, I'm not entirely sure on what countries are part of the Eurasian economic union uh, um, there's a lot of overlap there's a lot of overlap uh, but I just want to look at this real quick okay 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 so Russia Belarus Armenia Kazakhstan Kyrgyzstan and that's it so uh, I was I was about to name uh, fucking Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan as well but they're not a part of this so Russia Armenia Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan are a part of the the uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, and now Iran has a free trade deal with a free trade organization. So, essentially, they uh, the Iranians have gained free trade access to the the broader the extended Russian market, if you will, the extended Russian market, because that's that's what it is. I mean, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Belarus, Armenia; they, these aren't necessarily the biggest economies on the face of the earth, but they're heavily integrated with Russia. And Russia is a one of the biggest economies on the face of the earth. And we've gone over th uh, through various metrics uh, and my, the one that I use the most and, you know, uh, is the burger, was it the McDonald's, the Big Mac scale? There we go. The Big Mac index where you compare the price of Big Mac and then you can tr roughly translate that into the purchasing power of the currency. And then you can go from purchasing power of the currency into purchasing power parity and then you can extrapolate from purchasing power parity the, the the size of an economy 
and doing it that way. And there are other metrics as well, but I just think that the Big Mac is <laughs> a very fun one to use. But when you extrapolate economy size that way, Russia's economy is actually equal to or larger than Germany's. And that was, you know, pre, pre-Ukraine war. Russia's economy has been growing. They had like, what, uh, less than 1% shrinkage in 2022 from their economy. And now... Putin's talking about their economy is going to grow by three and a half percent this year. The year is almost over. So he, what he's saying is that, yeah, we've we've grown by three and a half percent. That that's what he's saying because it's what the eleventh of December now. We're in the eleventh hour, and he's talking about, oh yeah, yeah, yeah the economy is going to grow by three and a half percent this year. Well, that means most of that growth has already happened. So we're looking at easily three uh, percent, unless he's just saying, yeah, that we're just going to add a percent and a half in the last month, which is not like him to say but yeah iran now has a free trade deal with the broader with the extended russian market kazakhstan belarus armenia kyrgyzstan and it is another thing that uh is reminding me of that this uh trade deals remind me of is how russia has been interacting with countries beyond uh, the former soviet space because uh, russia's goal is to reintegrate that space it's not necessarily put the soviet union back together right that russia doesn't want the soviet union putin doesn't want the soviet union but what putin does want is for russians to live inside of russia what putin does want is the russian civilizational sphere and part of that is inevitably going to be reintegration of a lot of these countries a lot of these states back into russia proper and he's alluded to such a thing happening in some of his speeches when he goes off into a more civilizational tangent. And he uh, is obviously counting Central Asia, the Caucasus, Belarus, Ukraine, and the Baltics in that Russian world. That Russian civilization or that Ruski Mir, whatever you want to call it. And we already know that Belarus is going to be formally integrated into Russia at some point in the future. We know that Ukraine's going to lose, and about 70-80% of it is going to be reintegrated into Russia at some point in the future. Uh, depending on how things go with Armenia in the Caucasus, they might end <laughs> they might end up in such a shitty situation that they opt for reintegration with Russia as well. And honestly, they have their rather traitorous leader to thank for that. I call him a traitor because, you know... if. If a U.S. president was just handing out American land to a foreign nation that we just fought a war with, not as a part like a part, a part of a treaty where we lost and so we have to give it up, but like, okay, we're, we're just going to give you this land. Yeah, you, you fought a war with us. You killed some of our people. We're just going to give you this land with for nothing in exchange. Well, if that was the U.S. president, I'd call it treason. So I, I, I say rather treasonous because, you know, if that was my country, you know, I'd look at him as a traitor. Well, I don't know how the Armenians look at him. I know that they're not happy with him, but I, I'm not entirely sure if they'd go as far as to call him a traitor, but that's what it looks like from the outside looking in. He has straight up sat, and this is Pushinian I'm talking about, Pushinian, he's the president of Armenia. He straight up sabotaged and kneecapped his own country, surrendering Nagorno-Karabakh to Azerbaijan, talking about giving a land bridge, uh, giving more Armenian territory to Azerbaijan so that Azerbaijan can have a land bridge to their territory. Uh, and what was the name of that territory? I know I wrote it down once. I know I wrote it down once. Uh, but yeah, 
all this this is sabotage if if he was my leader i'd call him a traitor i'll say that much and given the way he is sabotaging uh armenia's geostrategic position i would not be surprised if at some point some future armenian leader opts for a puts forth the the the, the referendum him, himself and you know you know what guys you know what guys may that last president really fucked us over i don't think we're going to be able to come back from this one what do you guys think about joining russia again uh yay nay yay yay okay, okay. i wouldn't be surprised I, I would not be surprised now russia already has abkhazia and south ossetia that they've carved out of georgia so what does georgia then get pressed from both sides like things can go a great number of ways uh and i i found the name of the azerbaijani enclave to the like the southwest of armenia which is the nakchivan the nakchivan autonomous republic there, there we go yeah that's their there that's the piece of Azerbaijani territory that Armenia is talking about giving them a land bridge to. But I wouldn't be surprised. I, like This level of sabotage can cripple a country. It can. And I, given the, the, the civilizational turn that Russia's geopolitics, namely under Putin and Putin himself, have taken, I wouldn't be surprised if Russia starts making more plays towards integrating and, well, reintegrating the former Soviet space. We see if a formal and peaceful reintegration with Belarus, we're going to see the, the forcible reintegration through uh, Ukraine. Kazakhstan is is on side and they're not going anywhere, especially after Putin bailed them out from that that uh, that regime change attempt, that color revolution back in 2021. I see Belarus, Ukraine, and at least Kazakhstan being reintegrated into Russia. Uh, Kazakhstan may come later on down the line, but you see Kazakhstan's part of the CSTO. They're a part of the Eurasian Economic Union. They're uh, in Russia's now exporting its own reindustrialization to places like Kazakhstan and Belarus. I see the the integration uh, through non-political means happening at such a rapid rate that I wouldn't be surprised if Russia just slowly over the course of this century just starts re-annexing all this territory that they lost when the Soviet Union collapsed. And it, you get sort of like a, when you're looking at a map, a, almost a, a repeat of Russia's border growth from like 1800 to 1900, where they slowly expanded into the same region in a slow and steady uh, pace, just like they're doing now. But that's my my tangent there. But yeah, I, I see that beyond the borders, the, the frontiers of what used to be the Soviet Union, the Russians have made a, a very strong effort to have good relations with the countries on the other side of those frontiers, like Turkey. They they they, Turkey's been a very strange relationship for them. But they they put up with Turkey's antics and Turkey's almost schizophrenic. One day we're your friend, one day we're your enemy, one day we're the Ottomans, and one day we're back to being Turkey, a NATO member. And it, they put up with that for the sake of having a good relationship. They, Russia's really kindled and invested into this relationship with Iran, and we can see the fruits of that with this 
free trade deal between Iran and the, the Eurasian Economic Union. And with Iran selling military weapons, namely drones, to Russia during the war, we've seen Russia investing in a good relationship with Pakistan, although that one's much more on the down low. We see Russia having a, a working relationship with Afghanistan, although, granted, the people in charge have sort of been absent for 20 years. Uh, and they had a war back in the 1980s. Soviet Union. But... And they've really, 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 really invested heavily into a good relationship with China, and the North Koreans love them anyway. And they have a, a working relationship with Japan as well. All these countries on the opposite ends of Russia's frontiers, Russia has excellent relations with, and that is a part of an extended geographic security environment. By having good relations with countries uh, beyond your preferred frontiers, you can protect those frontiers because those countries are going to be friendly to you. And it's just a thing I've observed over the past few years, you know, paying more attention to geopolitics for the sake of the podcast. But I see it continuing now with Iran being let in, almost de facto being let into the Eurasian Economic Union if you're going to have a free trade deal with them, uh, which not a lot of countries have. Uh, and I'll just add a side note before we move on. The economic... Uh, union is also how Russia's managed to one of the means and mechanisms by which Russia's completely evaded the sanctions. I, I saw a graph because uh, I was watching a video talking about how the sanctions failed. There's this graph of German car exports to the country of Kyrgyzstan. If you remember, Kyrgyzstan is a part of the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, and it just shoots up by five thousand <laughs> percent. And obviously, the the people living there aren't buying all these cars for themselves. They're buying the cars and then reselling them to the Russians because the Russians have been banned from purchasing them directly. And it's, it's ingenious. It is ingenious. It's one of the things that a free trade agreement can do for you. And it is actually, it actually demonstrates in another way, in a more economic way, the benefits of not necessarily having direct control or annexing, you know, other parts of the former Soviet space, which is also something that Russia has expressed a, a desire to do, but also a desire not to do, because, you know, the Russians really don't want to have to rule over non-Russians and people who don't want to buy into the Russian project. But you, we see with Belarus how Lukashenko basically diffused the... Um, the mutiny uh, that happened with Prigozhin in 48 hours flat, how they did that. And by simply existing, they, they enable a buffer between Russia and NATO. And so we saw that benefit because Prigozhin was actually being going to be exiled to Belarus, where he'd still be close, but he wouldn't be in Russia. That's so, a, a very good thing that was only really possible because Belarus was still its own country, even though it was heavily and is still heavily integrated with Russia. And we see with Kyrgyzstan <laughs> buying up German-made uh, cars that in a, the, the, a more indirect reintegration of the former Soviet space also allows you to bypass sanctions. 
it, just just a thought and so we might not see direct annexations of every country in the former soviet space but we will see a, a sort of layer by layer reintegration through various multilateral and multinational institutions built by russia with the CSTO and the Eurasian Economic Union being two of which that I'll name. And then of course, there's always the direct option, which is the union state option. But I'll digress. Uh, Putin uh, made a visit to the UAE and Saudi Arabia, uh, where he spoke, he gave some speeches. He was basically welcomed uh, really, really well. Uh, again, the parallels between um, how he's welcomed and how Biden was welcomed in when he shows up is once again on full display because before it was Xi Jinping now it's Putin coming and it's it's just a, a whole different ball game because when Putin went to UAE everyone was there they're all greeting him they're all excited to see him when Putin goes to Saudi Arabia the king the Saudi king who's usually bedridden get got up to meet him in person at the airport something that he's only ever done for Xi Jinping so far so he's done it for Xi Jinping, he's done it for Putin, expressing that he views them as both equally important, important enough to to cast aside his own sickness, his own ailments, uh, at least momentarily, to go meet them in person because he views it as that important. He didn't do that for Biden, I'll, and I'll just leave it there. We all know what that means. He does not have anywhere near the same respect for Biden that he does for these two. Now, granted, I'm not entirely sure if he's done that for Trump either. But regardless, it's not as though Trump came in offering them the same things that Russia and China are offering. Trump's simply renegotiating the terms of these agreements. And to that end, he and Mohammed bin Salman, the prince, not the king, do have a much better relationship than Biden and bin Salman do anyway. So either way it goes we can see that the disrespect for Biden is evident. It is very, very evident. So there's that. Uh, we had the Houthis in Yemen uh, getting active now. With They're attacking Israeli shipping in the Red Sea near the Bab al-Mandab Strait, or as I like to call it, the Straits of Djibouti. Because <laughs> it's by Djibouti, it's that narrow passageway where the Red Sea goes into the air, or the the Arabian Sea there. There we go. I'm tripping up my words a little bit, but I'm, I'm able to get past it if I just push through. But yeah, so we have that. So the tanker war is intensifying. Israel, the war in Israel-Palestine is expanding because let's not pretend that these attacks just came out of nowhere. No, they're taking advantage of the fact that Israel's preoccupied and now they're striking Israel where it hurts. And we we're going to see more of this. The longer this war goes on, the more you're going to see other players who also have a bone to pick with the Israelis start to pick those bones. And Israel can't have all of its bones picked at the same time. If it does, it'll be like a vulture getting eating a carcass, except Israel's going to be the carcass. Getting its bones picked by all these vultures waiting to pick them. That's what's going to happen. The longer this war goes on, the worse it's going to be for Israel. And I focus so much on Israel because Israel's in the driver's seat here. And we'll talk more about Israel and actually not that long when we get to the meat of this episode. But this is a major escalation. It, it, it doesn't seem like much, especially since the U.S. Navy is in the region. 
which does beg the question, how exactly did this happen if we have two carrier battle groups over there? If their goal is to protect Israel, oh, it's because they're not there to protect Israel. They're there to start a war with Iran. So again, you know, demonstrating where the real ambitions are, and it's not about freedom and democracy and protecting allies, even though these are the things we're going to be beaten over the head with. It's about starting a war with Iran. <clears throat> it's about starting a war with Iran, and the war is now escalating and expanding. The Houthis are now taking advantage of the fact that Israel's in a compromised position. What will they do? We'll have to wait and see, because uh, Israel is preoccupied. We have the U.S. vetoing uh, another ceasefire in the U.N. because uh, there was a, a resolution for another ceasefire in Gaza. U.S. vetoed it in the U.N. Security Council. Uh, for what reason exactly? Not entirely sure. Well, what? Oh, wait. What do I mean? They want to war the Iran. Of course they're going to veto the... <laughs> See... If we think about how countries would operate logically, a lot of the things the United States doesn't, the a lot of things the U.S. does doesn't make sense for it to do. And then when you realize that we're not exactly being led by logical people and that these people don't really have America's best interest in mind anyway, then when you get to the heart of the interests of the, those people and those individuals, rather than just saying, oh, America did this, although it is very easy to just say that without you know diving any further, when you get into the people responsible for this and their motivations and their ambitions, well, you oh, they want to start a war with Iran. How do you get a war with Iran? Well, you let the war in Gaza continue. You let the fighting continue. You let all the, the Arab world get lit ablaze in anger over what's happening in Palestine and then use the radicalism that that creates and the attacks on your troops in Syria and Iraq, troops that shouldn't be there, to justify fighting war with Iran because you blame all the people who attacked your troops. You just call them Iranian proxies, Iranian proxies. Oh my God, Iran, Iran's proxies, it's proxies, it's proxies, it's proxies. And then when you decide to start the war, you've already built up the narrative that our troops have been constantly being harassed and harangued and attacked by Iranian proxies. So of course it makes sense that eventually the U.S. would have to respond because Israel has the right to respond, and so do we. So the overlapping narratives, you know, they love their narratives because it gets people to passively consent to things and, you know, explain for the politicians instead of letting the politicians uh, answer for these questions. But yeah, that, that's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at. Another ceasefire canceled because the goal isn't actually to do anything useful. It's just to start another war. We have Israel reporting that 93 of its soldiers have died in Gaza since they went in. That number is only going to go up if they commit to this ground offensive. Uh, and last but not least, did you... Uh, well, actually, before I move on, there was something I was going to say. Something I was going to... U.S. veto to ceasefire. No, 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 no. Israel... That was something that I, that came to my mind, and now it's slipped. It has slipped. Uh, what was it? Oh, whatever, whatever. Uh, but yeah, did you see that uh, that congressional testimony where the heads of state—not the heads of state, but the heads of these Ivy League college schools, uh, like MIT, Penn State, and Harvard—they were being grilled by Congress, and they were being asked if 
if calling for genocide of Jews violated their code of conduct for bullying and harassment on their campuses, and they just sat there giving non-answers the entire time, each and every one of them. And I'm just like, wow. Now, some people will say, well, a free speech, you can't compel them to speak. You, why are you doing all this for the Israelis? Why are you doing all this for the Jews when you don't do this for your own people? And it's like, well, sure, you can make the argument that it's hypocritical to be this up someone's ass over the Jews and not any other group people. But let's, you know, take a step back and look at the context here. The context is that there's a war and people on campus are simping for Hamas. And it's not just, oh, let's stop Israel from doing what it's doing. And there are a lot of the, like, I'm, I'm not saying that the majority of these protests aren't just opposition to what Israel is doing in Gaza. But let's also not sit here and pretend let the Hamas simps don't exist. Let's not pretend that we don't know what they mean when they say from the river to the sea. Let's not pretend that ethnic cleanser B is better than ethnic cleanser A. Again, uh, the simping for these two sides just gets you nowhere, and no, and it's and playing such stupid games gets you these really stupid prizes. And these college presidents, these headmasters of these elite schools, have won an incredibly stupid prize of looking like they consent to genocide. That's. Wow. 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 Does genocide violate your... Does, gen, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate your code of conduct for bullying harassment? Oh, well, if it crosses the line into action, so you have to... Goodness, bro. But yeah, whatever, whatever. And this is... It's frustrating and entertaining to watch, you know, but alas... That's the rapid fire. We will get into the meat of this episode <laughs> in just a moment. All right. So now we'll get into the first topic today, which is Italy withdrawing from the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, last week, Italy formally put in its withdrawal notice to the Chinese government. And they they joined the Belt and Road back in 2019. And their stint if you will, in the Belt and Road, is set to expire on March of 2024. And 2024 is going to be a very, very interesting year. Lots and lots of elections, lots of uh, conflicts that we can observe. A lot is going to happen in 2024. A, a lot of things that we're not even able to predict are going to happen in 2024. Lots of lawsuits, namely, namely concerning Trump, are going to happen in 2024. A whole lot's going to happen in 2024. And we are, what, two, three weeks away from 2024? It's going to be one wild-ass ride. One wild-ass ride. As it stands, we are 11 months away from Election Day. And this is going to be one wild election. And there's going to be, again, lots of elections around the world. The world is going to look very different on the other side of 2024. Not just the United States, the entire planet, because so many elections and so many conflicts. <clears throat> China, Taiwan is likely to kick off 2024, if it's going to kick off at all. You have Israel, Palestine will be forcibly resolved 
one way or the other in 2024. I wasn't sure how long the conflict would go on when it started back in October, but it appears to have at least enough staying power to get to 2024. And if it doesn't end in a peace deal, if it doesn't end in a negotiated settlement, it, like the Russo-Ukrainian war, will be ended through force of arms. And I find it very strange. It will, I find it very interesting, not strange, but interesting, that now that the, the war has gone on long enough to where it's the collapse of Israel, if it's going to happen that way, is going to happen in 2024. The total defeat of Israel, because it's going to be total. Like, some people can't see it now because they're bombing the Palestinians. But understand, they're not fighting just the Palestinians. A lot of effort is being put in by the Iranians and the Saudis. And it's a great irony, mind you, because you you get all this talk about how Iran is trying to fight them and Iran is doing all this. But Iran is actually working with Arabia to contain the conflict. That's, if this thing doesn't end properly, it's going to result in a regional coalition. Now, I'll get it. I've gone off on a tangent again. I'll get into that later on. All right, I'll, I'll control myself. You know, I just have all these thoughts on my mind at the same time. But we'll get into Israel-Palestine in, in a minute. But back to Italy. Yeah, the 2024, I believe they're probably even having elections too, if I'm, if I'm uh, probably, yeah. Well, we can look it up, you know, when we have our Google at, at hand. But yeah, they've been a part of the Belt and Road since 2019. They're, in, they're leaving in March of 2024. Now, they, they cite a lack of meaningful benefits from the BRI. Uh, and you know what? You know what? I, I would give them shit. <laughs> I would give them shit, but if, you know, for not thinking uh, long term, because I'm I'm thinking, oh yeah, if they're a part of the Belt and Road, then they're going to be able to reap the benefits. Because once uh, you have all this peace that has just manifested itself in the Middle East with a little bit of help from China, a little bit of help from Russia, but it's largely been a very organic thing. And I think the four years of Trump really enabled this to happen. Uh, uh, let me just go ahead and insert Trump into this because well, Trump was perhaps the least interventionist president we've had in, well, I can't exactly give a time frame. Uh, the least interventionist president we've had since uh, Hoover. <laughs> now, he's nowhere close to, you know, the, the pre-World War II presidents, you know, World War II era and then the Cold War era. He, he's nowhere near common sense levels of intervention, which is none at all, but he was the least interventionist president in a long, long time. Now, he did do bombing raids in the Middle East, don't get me wrong, he killed Soleimani, he killed al-Baghdadi, he's a dog. (laughs) He did these things, right? He did get involved, he did start bombing ISIS, he did try to get the Abraham Accords across, which would have screwed over the Palestinians. But for his credit, he was the least interventionist president in a long time. And it enabled the freedom to breathe for so many countries that we had just been 
uh, down their throat, no pause. And a lot of the countries who we were just sitting on uh, for years upon years and just bombing it back into the Stone Ages, a lot of those countries were in the Middle East. The four years of Trump, for the, their merits and their dismerit, so, you know, the bombing raid here or there, the, the 57 Tomahawk missiles that they threw at Syria on like day two of the presidency. Yeah. Even with all that factored in, the four years of Trump that the Middle East had was the best four years they've had in a while. <laughs> and I think that that period of breathing space enabled them to have peace. Enough peace, enough breathing room, I should say, to get to the point of establishing peace. You have the rapprochement between Arabia and Iran. Yet, uh, our goodness, Assad. There we go. Assad making gains in the civil war, really bringing it damn near to an end. Now, you have the Abraham Accords. You you had a lot going on, and with the establishment of peace in the Middle East which has come a long, long way. You see Syria being back in the Arab League, Turkey, Arabia switching sides in the Syrian civil war, Arabia and Iran having a rapprochement. With this peace in the Middle East, and I'll get back to Italy in a minute, but with having peace in the Middle East, now you can have investment. In comes the Belt and Road, because that's where all this goes. No one's going to want to invest in your country if you're, if you're in danger of being bombed by the United States at any given moment in time. And to defend your investment from the United States would mean to fight the United States. No one's going to come building roads and railroads and bridges and tunnels in your country. But if you're at peace, if there's no ISIS, no Al-Qaeda and ISIS-K and Al-Shabaab and all these other nonsensical-ass CIA-funded groups, if there's no... Oh, Iran and Arabia are mortal enemies and we don't know if they're going to bomb each other one day. If there's no more civil war in Syria, and I do believe Yemen is on deck as well, and I'm pretty sure the Houthis are going to win that one too. I, like Iran was really good <laughs> on these picks. Like if, if you want Iran, if if you're a, a sports fan and you like to do bets and shit, you want Iran <laughs> to pick your draft because they picked the winning side on every conflict in their neighborhood for the past thirty years. It's insane. And it's paying dividends now, especially now that they have got this rapprochement with Arabia, which has been the bedrock of the recent developments we've seen, where the entire region, the Arab, the Islamic world have been more on the same page than they have been since the days of the Sultan. And that means that this is now the Middle East of all places is now a good environment for investment is now... Uh, they have now met the criterion for Belt and Road projects from China, for in, uh, energy and skills and trades investment from Russia, for energy and mineral extraction and industrialization programs from you know overlapping from Russia and China at the same time, nuclear power plants being built by the Russians, vocational training programs being brought in by the Russians. Roads, railroads, bridges, airports, modern ports, container ports, high-speed rail, 5G, 6G being brought in by the Chinese, energy gas pipelines coming in from Russia and perhaps even with the assistance of the Russians being built to Africa 
and Central Asia and Europe and South Asia into India. India is a massive market. And with Iran no longer a loose end, and with the introduction of the multipolar world and the introduction of the BRICS, now you can start getting ideas about pipelines running from Arabia to the and the UAE into Iran or along Iranian coastal waters going through Pakistan into India. And perhaps even through the Pakistan economic corridor that the Chinese have painstakingly built to you could even see the possibility of energy pipelines running from the Middle East through Pakistan into Western China. Huge developments from East to West and from North to South, East to West going from China all the way through Syria and North to South coming from Russia down to perhaps even Africa, straight through the Middle East and the region with Turkey being a gas hub now. All this peace in the Middle East, all these major changes in the ge in the geopolitics of this region have enabled the Belt and Road to now be allowed to come in in a major way. And it's not going to take long for that to start happening, especially once the Syrian civil war is over, like definitively. It's, it's a wrap. You're just going to see an explosion of development projects coming in from the Belt and Road. And if I sound like I'm glazing the Belt and Road, well, I, I kind of am. <laughs> I'll just be honest, I kind of am. But we're talking about Italy leaving the Belt and Road. Italy leaving the Belt and Road now. They're going to miss out on all the benefits of the Belt and Road, right as the benefits of the Belt and Road are going to be made present in a way that can directly benefit Italy. So now I've, I've finally come full circle back to Italy. The Middle East being at peace is the greatest thing that could happen to Italy if Italy is a part of the Belt and Road. The Middle East finally being stable enough for investment projects to come into the region. With the major states and the major powers of the Middle East finally being on good enough terms with one another for them to cooperate in their own economic developments and their own partnerships. Look at the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Look at the Arab League. Look at uh, Iran, Arabia, the UAE, and Egypt joining the BRICS. Look at the Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia. That's look at the the Houthis. Oh my God! When the war in Yemen is over, you know the the Houthis are gonna come in asking for the, that sweet Belt and Road shit. Ethiopia is a part of the Belt and Road. If Yemen joins, if Yemen has the the leeway of not being in a civil war, you could see a bridge or even an underwater an undersea bridge being built connecting the Horn of Africa through Ethiopia or even Djibouti to Yemen, which would cut travel times by land between the two continents, creating whole new economic opportunities and would open up the, the potential for high-speed rail links between the two as well. All this economic activity, all this economic development is going to breed industrialization. It's going to breed economic growth. It's going to breed prosperity and wealth creation in an area that's already rich in energy and mineral resources. It just needs the stability to really tap into them. And the Russians and the Chinese are going to, are 
no strangers to helping countries tap into these resources. The Russians are doing it for themselves on a massive scale. The Chinese are doing it with other countries on a massive scale. They're, Russia, China, well, Russia may not necessarily be the biggest market, but they are, they are 150 million people. They're going to get bigger through the <laughs> annexation of Ukraine. But looking at China and India, and India, don't forget the India, uh, the India Mideast Europe Economic Corridor that the Indians are talking about, they're getting in on the Belt and Road as well, but in their own unique way. China and India will be the engines for this growth with their massive three billion person demand. The Middle East has a lot of people. The Middle East collectively is like what? If we're not counting Pakistan, 300, 400 million people. So, uh, a half a billion people just kind of in the Middle East. That's a lot of people. That's a lot. Of, and when you look at economic development for that many people, that many countries in this rather, in this centralized into this region that has sort of, that, that has the potential to be wealthy and ha very, very hyper prosperous, but has been hindered by conflict in the politics, now getting the conflict out of the way, now getting the politics uh, right for cooperation, that's the perfect environment for Italy, because if the Middle East is not on fire, that means infrastructure and whatnot can come through the region. And the end goal of the Belt and Road is to get to Europe. So if you have massive new centers of wealth in the Middle East added on top of the Belt and Road, and they're able to export into India and China, they're also going to want to export into Europe as well. And if Italy is a part of the Belt and Road, that means that one, one of, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, one of the best end destinations for all this Belt and Road activity is going to be Italy. Because if you look at a map, Italy uh, is smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean. If you have access to Italy, you, your goods can go all throughout Europe. And this is one of the reasons why the Italian city-states were so well off, even as the Europeans were being fleeced for everything they were worth, to get their hands on spices. You know, back again, talking about a, a pre-Columbian world, which we're moving back to, and this is another sign of that, where the East is prosperous, India, China, they're just titans of production, Indonesia's rich, Japan is rich, and the richest go forth. The Middle East is rather wealthy. And then you get to Europe. Now, will Europe become a backwater? I'm, I don't think they will, or at least I hope not, for their sake. But Europe is definitely going to go back to being at the bottom of that totem pole. Now, in that new world, there's still going to be opportunity for certain states to carve out a larger piece of the pie for themselves. Italy has the opportunity to reprise its role as the middlemen between Europe and the middlemen. Italy has the chance, as a unified nation this time, to be the middlemen and between Europe and the multipolar world. The opportunity to reap massive trade duties on bringing in all these goods from the Belt and Road, because their end destinations are going to be towards ports that can sustain this, this activity. 
they're gonna have the opportunity to bring in all these goods from around the world as they make their way from the east through the middle east through and even through parts of africa into italy because africa is also going to be a major uh hub of economic expansion and growth especially once the russians are able to start getting energy down to the region which can then overlap with chinese investment projects creating growth at, at the very least on the eastern the northeastern quarter of africa which as far as italy is concerned would still be a massive boon to their economy if those goods are flowing into italy and they can then where they can then be re-exported with uh, a nice markup mind you they can be re-exported to the rest of europe because italy is a part of what the european union so if italy has it then it, italy can trade it with any country in europe but those countries even though there's no trade barriers those countries will still have to purchase them from the italians if the italians get their hands on the goods first which means that you don't necessarily need uh export duties you simply put a markup on it because you know it's going to be in the form of businesses not just all oh, the italian government gets this and they're going to be handed out no italian businesses are going to be the ones with the access to these goods which means that italian businesses once they get them well if you're going to sell them you're going to have to sell them for a, a higher price than you got it for so you can have a profit italian businesses could make money hand over fist selling the world's wares the world's goods to the european into the, the european market and the europeans will have no choice but to eat the loss of <laughs> unless they want to purchase these goods uh manually which may or may not be an option depending on how good the deal that the italians can get for themselves that's what, what italy has the potential to get right yeah now that's a very very long-term look at this which again to be fair to the italians i can't name a major belt and road project in italy now uh so i can perfectly understand and sympathize with when them leaving now but looking at this long term there's a lot to be gained from simply being a part of the building road like you really don't lose anything from being a part of it you you really don't all right now for america specifically i say well we should be building our own shit. it's it's more of a we need this for ourselves to be building our own shit than uh oh i i hate china oh china they're gonna have all this they're, they're gonna put us in debt and they're gonna try to control us I, I really don't fear china like that i really don't it's it's more of a personal thing a, a personal honor thing and you know a health of the country thing where we really should be relearning how to do all this shit. we really should be learning how to build our own railroads and our own and modernize our own ports these are things that America needs to relearn how to do. And it's it that's more of the angle I come from when I say that we don't necessarily need to be a part of Belt and Road. And we don't. And and plus, what we we live on the opposite side of the planet. We don't exactly get much out of being in the Belt and Road either. But we can benefit off of it through a lot of trade deals with countries who are part of the Belt and Road. That's America. Italy, they can benefit from these deals but they live in a very strategic location italy is at the heart of the mediterranean sea they have access to the entire european market they're part of the belt and road if 
they stay in the Belt and Road, they can reap the rewards of the Belt and Road, which, again, to be fair, they're not seeing right now. They're not seeing right now. This is long-term speculation here that depends on the Middle East. Because the Middle East is literally a barrier to the benefits of the Belt and Road getting to Italy in full. But the Middle East is is more unified and on the same page than they've been for a long time. Peace is making its way across the continent, I said the continent, across the region, with Israel-Palestine being an exception, not, not the rule anymore. Conflict is no longer the rule in the Middle East. It's becoming the exception. That's a massive geo, that's a massive shift in the geostrategic order. If Italy just waits it out, they will reap the reward of Chinese, ASEAN, India, and Middle Eastern goods making Italy one of their final destinations to get to the European market. That's a massive deal for Italian business because Italy, again, being in the EU, has access to the entire European market. So once an Italian business has their hands on these goods, they can sell them anywhere in Europe. Other businesses throughout other European countries are going to move to Italy to get their hands on these goods first, to get their hands on these cheap Chinese manufacturers, to get their hands on on Indian textiles and Indian uh, jewels, and because India has a massive jewels industry, jewelry industry, excuse me. They're gonna they're gonna go to Italy to get their hands on. <laughs> on Middle Eastern energy imports first before other countries so that they can, if, if you're an energy firm, you can get the, those resources on the cheap and then re-export them to other parts of Europe at a markup. Businesses from across Europe will move to Italy to get their hands on these on the entire world's goods coming in uh, through Italian ports. You will create on hitherto unseen prosperity in Italy. Italy will be more prosperous than they have been since the days of the Roman Empire. Relative to the rest of Europe, at least. It, it, you're looking at that. If, if we look at this long term, Italy has a lot to gain from just staying a part of the Belgian Road. But will they? So they, they say they're going to leave in March of 2024. If they leave in March, you don't get that anymore. But you know who will get it? Uh, assuming that they don't go down the same path as Italy, Greece is going to get it. Because Greece is, it, Greece already has the results of a Belt and Road project. It is the Port of Piraeus. The Chinese rebuilt and refurbished the Port of Piraeus. It's one of the biggest ports in the world now. And it's one of the busiest ports in the world now. And it is the chosen end destination of the India Mideast Europe economic corridor. And it is one of the chosen destinations of China's Belt and Road, the, the actual Belt and Road. You know. And it can be an end destination for Russian natural gas once Russia gets this gas hub proposal thing going with Turkey. Or, the, or Greece could be an end destination for the Russian natural gas moving through Turkey with the gas hub proposal. If Italy doesn't get the benefits of being in the Belt and Road, Greece will. 
and quite frankly, Greece is already in front of it. Greece is already in front of Italy in the line for these these massive benefits. But Italy can still get a good chunk of that for itself by being a part of the Belt and Road. Italy and Greece, even in a world of uh, demographic decline in Europe, even in a world where the European share of the global economy is shrinking, even in a world of you know shrinkage in Europe, quite frankly, even as the populations overall shrink, people are gonna within the shrinking populations are gonna move to places where they have opportunities. Italy and Greece can make themselves that place of opportunity where they can attract. They can buck the trend of Europe being having declining populations by having growing populations, right? Because they can have prosperity for their people, which can perhaps reverse the tide of demographic decline for themselves internally. But they can also, through prosperity, attract more business, which just creates this positive economic feedback loop for themselves, even if at the expense of other European countries, because, you know, they're they're going to be losing business in a world where the market, the European market is actually shrinking and Italy and Greece are going to get larger and larger shares of that pie of, of a shrinking pie, mind you. So Italy can carve out a very nice slice of a shrinking pie for themselves by being a part of the Belt and Road. They can do it. They can. And Italy is also a major manufacturer as well, right alongside Germany, so they, this kind of prosperity, this kind of economic activity would even help with their own domestic manufacturing. And they could perhaps start exporting back into other Belt and Road countries, other countries who are part of the multipolar world and exporting into Europe. Italy can have a really, really good time. But will they is the question. They say they're gonna leave in March of 2024. And again, I can't name a Belt and Road project in Italy. This is all speculation. This is all long-term thinking. But uh, shoot, that's a really good long-term speculation. I'd bet on that. But then again, I'm the one doing the speculating. So, so, so. But yeah, if Italy doesn't take the deal, if Italy doesn't take the W, Greece will. Right. But alas, we'll see what Italy does. We will see. Alrighty, so now we'll get into Israel-Palestine, and I've been talking a whole lot about peace in the Middle East, and how this is going to enable massive flows of investment to come in, and how Arabia and Iran were doing the rapprochement, and it's, those four years of Trump enabled enough breathing room for this to happen, because Trump was not nearly as interventionist, and not nearly as much of a warmonger as just about every predecessor <laughs> going back to what hoover that's a long time that's a very that's almost 100 years uh it's been a long time since we've had a president that disinterested in intervention now again trump is not the isolationist candidate unfortunately but he's still not a warmonger and you know you know it's a shame that the bar is that low but you know you gotta <laughs> you gotta t you got to go what you got to go. But yeah, those four years of Trump enabled the breathing space for the Middle East to really start to fix its own problems. To the point where conflict is becoming the aberration 
not the norm. And a part of that aberration is, of course, Israel-Palestine right now. And we can see that it is the aberration because all eyes are on Israel-Palestine. And, and it's not, oh, the conflict could expand into Syria and then ISIS could join on the side of Hamas. And then that'll kick off with the, the Yemen, with the, the Houthis in Yemen. And then, and then there's going to be a civil war in Arabia. And, and then the Taliban's going to come in and it's not like that anymore. We thought going into this that Israel attacking Gaza was going to get them an immediate backlash from Hezbollah. Hezbollah has stood back and restrained themselves. Iran has stood back and restrained themselves and helped to restrain Hamas, uh, not Hamas, Hezbollah as well. Iran has actually been working with Arabia to keep the conflict contained to just Israel-Palestine. Now, we're already starting to see some of the cracks form with the Houthis in Yemen firing on um, uh, Israeli shipping that passes through the Djibouti Straits. Uh, I did give the official name to that earlier, but it, I'm not going to say that again. <laughs> I'm just going to call it the, the Strait of Djibouti. But we can we can see the cracks starting to form here. Like well, there's been attempts made to get a ceasefire. They succeeded at getting brokering a ceasefire. Well, not or the Iranians and the Arabs uh, specifically, but a ceasefire was brokered. It was then extended by two days for a total of six. Uh, another ceasefire was put forth in the UN. Uh, so of course it was shot down by the United States. But this is the result of the diplomacy that's been going on in the background since this conflict started. Like we see reactions to it now, but let's understand where this came from. It's Iran and Arabia. Iran and Arabia have been tag teaming the, di the diplomatic angle of this conflict since day one. And just a few weeks ago, we saw a joint meeting. This never happened. To my knowledge, this hasn't happened before. And if it has, it's very, very rare a joint meeting between the Organization of Islamic Cooperation and the Arab League. And the Iranians were in Arabia taking their seat along with all the other Islamic nations in the world. The Iranian president, the Ayatollah, was allowed to speak before the entirety of the Islamic world where all the leaders were present in the same room as the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. This shit hasn't happened before. And, and it's it's been very entertaining and honestly very uh, nice to watch. I, I, there's a little part of me that's proud of them. <laughs> you know, in, in, in an indirect manner, it's not, like I'm, it's not like I have any personal stake in them, but you know, watching the story unfold and seeing where they came from not that long ago, it's beautiful to watch. Now, granted, uh, if you're on, if you're simping for Israel, the last thing you want to see is Arabia and Iran on the same page. But if you're looking at the broader arc of history, this is history. Uh, no, no pun intended. This is literally history being made, and it's you just can't make this shit up. This is better than speculation. This is reality. But, yeah, with all this peace and all this cooperation, uh, and uh, don't, let's not forget that Iran and Arabia and the UAE and Egypt are all 
joining the Belt and Road in a matter of weeks. Because they're joining in January. Uh, what I said, the Belt and Road? They're, <laughs> they're joining the BRICS in a matter of weeks, formally. Argentina's uh, not, but, you know, that's Argentina. And, but just focusing on this region here, these guys are joining the BRICS in just a couple weeks because they joined in January. This is huge. Peace has become, has almost become the norm in the Middle East, not the aberration. Conflict has gone from being the norm in the Middle East to almost becoming an aberration. And the Israel-Palestine conflict is re, and, and watching the diplomacy and the politics surrounding it, it within the region at least, is really starting to emphasize that point. And it's very interesting to watch. So that, that's going on in the background of the Israel-Palestine conflict, where the diplomacy, the, the mechanisms of diplomacy, the machinery is now functioning, it's kicking into high gear, where we're getting multiple peace deals, not just being brokered in Italy, uh, Italy, in Israel and Palestine, and then getting extended. Like, that takes a lot of pressure. Uh, but then for another ceasefire proposal to be put forth in the UN, like the diplomacy is firing on all cylinders. And at a certain point in time, there's going to be the call for the peace summit. Arabia is likely going to be the one. Arabia has positioned itself at the center of the both the Arab and the Islamic world, as they, they are, let's be honest. But Arabia, with the backing of Iran, is a an undeniable wombo combo. It is an irresistible wombo combo for any country who calls itself Islamic, because that's Sunni and Shia Islam together. Arabia is... <laughs> That is the Arab world. Like it's Arab is in its name. It is Arabia. When you think Arab, you think Arabia. So they're already the center of the Arab world. So you have the Arab world and the Islamic world led by Arabia. So when you talk about peace for the Palestinians, when you talk about someone who's going to represent them, it's going to be the Arab, the quintessential Arab and Islamic state, Arabia. They're going to be the ones who put out that call, they're going to be the ones to call for the summit, the peace summit. And when that call goes out, it's it's over. It's over. It, it'll be checkmate for Israel. Either Israel says yes, and they agree to the terms. If they say no, they're the part of the problem. If Israel goes to the peace summit, and they say no to the terms, they're a part of the problem. If Israel goes to the peace summit, they say yes, and then they renege on the things that they agreed to, they're part of the problem. So either Palestine wins or Israel dies is essentially where this conflict goes. Because the, uh, the Arabs, the Iranians, and just about everyone else who showed up at that joint meeting, that joint summit, made it very clear that this conflict needs to be resolved in a lasting way and that Palestine needs full sovereignty. And this is what I, this is what I mean when I say that Palestine, specifically Hamas, Hamas has already won. Now all Hamas has to do is stay alive. The, their objective now is to survive, and Israel fighting them in an urban environment is, which is the dumbest thing you could possibly do when fighting a guerrilla force, 
the Israelis are going to make it nice and easy for them to do. Uh, granted, the Israelis aren't even really fighting Hamas, if we're being honest. They're fighting the Palestinian people, which is only going to help ha- uh, Hamas further. Because Hamas, for all, that, for all that they are, terrorist group, and they are, their goal, their ultimate end goal, is the liberation of Palestine. It is full sovereignty of Palestine. Their means are not so important to them as the ends. The means are not as important as the ends. The ends will justify the means. And the ends that they're going to achieve is going to be the liberation of Palestine. The ends that they're going to achieve is going to be full sovereignty for Palestine. The ends that they have already achieved is region-wide unity behind Palestine. The entire Arab and Islamic world is unified behind Palestine right now. And the mechanisms of diplomacy are already firing off and on all cylinders on behalf of Palestine. That is a victory that a lot of people who, you know, who don't like Hamas and don't like uh, what they did on October the 7th, that they're missing. And quite frankly, that a lot of people who support uh, Palestine and sim for Hamas are also missing, but to a lesser degree. The outcome of this is going to be a Palestinian state. It's just a matter of will the Israelis go out quietly or, or, or are they going to sacrifice their own country in the process? Because the Arabs, the Arab world, the Islamic world, they're not going to hesitate to simply hand over all of that territory back to the Palestinians if Israel is not going to be agreeable to a peace. If they're going to try to continue to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians, if they're going to continue to try to bomb civilians in Gaza, again, and, and that's the real problem. Like, Because, yeah, you're at war with Palestine. You've been at war for decades. So it's you don't necessarily need a justification to fire a rocket at the enemy position. But you don't get to bomb civilians without consequence, especially when those civilians are part of a broader, you know, civilizational structure. That's the that's the issue that Israel has. They're not fighting the military of Palestine, which, as far as we're concerned, is Hamas. They're not fighting the Palestinian military. They're fighting the Palestinian civilian populace, and that will be their Achilles' heel, uh, and will it's going to be their downfall. And if they are not agreeable to a peace, when that summit gets called, Israel will be wiped off the map. Now, then we have to ask, is Israel going to use the nukes? That'll be one hell of a question to ask. Although, I'm not entirely sure that they will, because at that point, at that point, I'm sure Pakistan comes into the picture. And Pakistan is already a nuclear armed state. And if Israel starts talking about, oh, we're going to use the nukes, we're going to use the nukes, I'm sure, I'm, I'm fairly confident at that point even Pakistan and perhaps even Russia. But just looking at the Islamic world, uh, assuming that Russia doesn't get any more involved than it already is, Pakistan will come in and say, hey, we have nukes too. We can hit you. Don't try that shit. And that diffuses the nuclear issue because if Israel tries to use one, they'll get hit with one. And with mutually assured destruction, uh, with the Middle East under uh, Pakistan's nuclear umbrella, Israel is checkmated even further. And that's another angle that is not quite brought up much, although granted no one's talking much about nukes. Uh, But if Israel does start threatening to use its nukes, it will be checkmated again by the Pakistanis, if not the Russians, them damn selves. Um, I'm not entirely sure if the Russians will go that far, 
but the Pakistanis may. And if they get wiped off the map, all that territory is not going to be used to split into two different countries anymore. It's just going to be Palestine. The entirety of the what used to be the mandate of Palestine when it was part of the British Empire is going to be given to the Palestinians. And that'll be a very bitter pill to swallow for the Israelis. It'll be a bitter pill to swallow for the Zionists, the people who want this state, this Jewish state. And for the people who gave money and weapons and all this stuff to it, to Israel. Goodness, Israel. I keep trying to say Italy, but it's Israel. That's what we're looking at. Like, that's what's in the background, lingering in the background as an ever-present possibility if this continues to go south. But alas, we'll see if it gets there. But now let's dive into what's happening now, as I've sort of got my tangent out of the way. Israel has bombed. <laughs> Israel's continued its bombing campaign. Uh, Israel, Gaza's health ministry has now put the death toll in Gaza at 17,500. Israel has struck multiple targets, including Khan Yunis and Rafah, which is infamous for the uh, refugee camp there, which they have also bombed before in the past. Now, between uh, Khan Yunis and Rafah, 11 people have died. Uh, but the health ministry of Gaza also reports that 71 people are dead and 160, well, no, 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 let me go back. I, I said 71 people are dead. The, the health ministry of Gaza reports that 71 dead and 160 wounded arrived at the Al-Aqsa hospital in the city of Deir al-Bala. So 71 new additions to the death count and 160 wounded arrived at this hospital. And this is a I'm assuming a major hospital if it's taking in this many new applicants, this many new admissions, I should say. Uh, and it, this also sort of gives us an interesting look into the, the death to casualty ratio in pa uh, Palestine, 71 to 160. That's almost a, for every one dead, you have two wounded. Uh, it's a little bit higher because, you know, two times 71 would be like 142. You're looking at 160 wounded. But that's still a, a really bad wound death. It's a really bad fatality rate. That, there we go. That's the, what I'm looking for. Because out of your casualties, uh, which uh, adding the 71 dead and the 160 wounded, that would be 231 total casualties. A third of the casualties are deaths. Like, you could only get worse by going to Ukraine, where the, the fatality rate is actually half instead of one third. But considering we're talking purely civilians here and not military, that's even or arguably worse, especially if we're going to sit here and try to make moral arguments about, oh, who's right and wrong? Well, one side is has a fatality rate of civilians in the one to three range and it continues to get worse i will never understand people who try to sit there and moralize israel's actions like even if you understand 
if, even if you have the understanding, I should say, that Israel's actions are justified and that they should and, in your view, need to do what they're doing, which I can understand considering that Israel is at war with Palestine, I will never understand the, oh, they're more moral than Hamas when you've killed 17,000 people, the vast majority of which being women and children, like a, a super majority, even if you count every single one of the men, the men only make up like uh, less than a third of that count. So two thirds of all the people who've died have been either women or children. So in the case of the death count now, well, the death count when I grabbed it, which was 17,500, it's probably 18,000 now, which is a conservative estimate. You're looking at at least 12,000 of that being women and children. You don't get to claim to be trying to mitigate civilian losses. You don't get to claim to be, oh, we're fighting a more, we're being more moral than Hamas. Hamas didn't kill 18,000 people. Hamas attacked you. Yes. Hamas got you really badly. Yes. Hamas did horrible things on October the 7th. And just like I say that Hamas doesn't necessarily need a reason to attack Israel since you're already at war, which is a, a revelation that, you know, I came that I, I came to thinking about the absurdity of this whole thing. And then I realized, wait a fucking second, we're we're discussing the morality of a raid in a war, because that's what October the 7th is. When you when you take uh, like 10 steps back and you remember that the war didn't start on October the 7th, the war didn't start a week earlier. No, this war has been going on for decades and we've seen multiple rounds of fighting between them. When you take that that 50,000 foot view and, and you realize October the 7th was a single raid, a very successful raid on the part of you know Palestine and Hamas, but October the 7th was a single raid that we're acting like was the inciting incident of the conflict. And it's, it's just absurd. Now, just like they don't need a reason to attack you if you're already at war, Israel doesn't necessarily need a reason to attack the Palestinians. The problem is that Israel won the conventional war a long time ago, and they're not fighting Hamas. They claim to be fighting Hamas. They claim to be killing Hamas, but they're, we can see it. They're just bombing civilians. Even if you count every single one of the men who died since October the 7th, even if you count every single one of the male, adult male Palestinians as Hamas, which would be absurd, every single one of the adult males who have died, if you count all of them as Hamas, that still leaves you with two-thirds of the casualties, more than two-thirds, actually, because uh, damn near half were children, like 40% are children, and then you have around a third of the total number being women, which actually squeezes down the what what's left to like 30% of the casualties being men. Yo, that leaves you with two thirds of the casualties being women and children. You're not fighting Hamas, you're just killing civilians. Because if, if we're being real, if we're being real, 
most of the men that you're killing probably aren't Hamas either. It's it's insane. But we're we're just we're gonna pretend like you're attacked because if they if they were attacking and killing Hamas, that that'd be one thing, right? Because that that's functionally Palestine's military, right? If we're being straightforward here, if they were killing and, and just slaughtering Hamas. It'd be uh, disgusting to look at, because that's what war is. But you could at least say, this is their military force. Their guerrilla fighting force, sure. They hide behind their civilians, yes. But this is the military. We are killing the Palestinian military, because that's what Hamas is. But you're not. The problem isn't that Israel is attacking Palestine, the Palestinian military, Hamas. The problem is that Israel is just indiscriminately bombing civilians and calling it Hamas. That's the issue that Israel has, and that's the Isra- that's the issue that's going to undo them. It's their Achilles heel. Uh, but yeah, 17,500, probably 18,000 deaths in Gaza now. More than two-thirds of that women and children. Uh, 230 people being admitted into a, a single hospital in a day. And, you know, last week, uh, and it, it last week, uh, as I try to progress through my notes here, you know, uh, I'm just dumping all my thoughts onto you and I'm trying to make it co. <laughs> I'm trying to make it coherent. Cause as I, I, as I go through, I, I remember things that I was ranting to myself about, you know, earlier on in the week, but, yeah, last week we talked about reports of Israel firing on their own people on October the 7th, which would do serious debt, which if true, because we don't necessarily know if it's true, there was a report that came out, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely convinced. I wouldn't put it past the Israelis, but again, I'm not just going to jump out there and say, oh yeah, they were shooting their own people. But it's a thing now that's being reported. <laughs> by news outlets that are friendly to Israel. And it's not entirely outside of their pattern of behavior, especially when you look at uh, the fact that they're trying to bury the cars that were damaged on October the 7th. And I find that suspicious. But I digress. We talked last week about those reports of Israel firing on their own people. Now, I I have a New York Times article. We'll we'll go over that later. Uh, it's not about them firing on their own people, but it's about uh, a lot of these stories. It, it's about Israel knowing that the attack was coming, right? And with some of this information coming out now, I think that it's just really really suspect. I think a lot of this information coming out is really really suspect, uh, and it calls into question a lot of what we've been told about this war since the beginning. And with so much of what we've been told about the war being called into question by some of this new information that we're being given, I can't dismiss the possibility that they were firing on their own people. And But all in all, it got me thinking about the numbers. And so I decided to do some digging into the numbers uh, of Israeli losses, uh, which then led me digging into even more numbers so allow me as i run through these numbers a little bit because you know uh that's one of the things that i do when talking about a conflict this big i try to dig into the numbers and see what information we can get out of it so the latest bit of info that israel may have been firing on their own people 
really inspired me to look into this because I've been hearing that some of these losses were military, Israeli military. I've been hearing that Israel didn't actually take seven hours to respond, but they they actually were just getting shot. They were, they were getting lit up by uh, Hamas. And so that they decided to lie about taking seven hours to get there instead of admitting that their military was just getting dogged by the by Hamas. It, whether that's true or not, we'll, we'll find out soon with the rate that this information started to come out. But uh, I started digging into the numbers. Now, officially, the total number of, is, of Israeli dead as a result of the Hamas attack is just over 1,200. Now, if we break that down, it's 851 civilian deaths, which includes 59 police officers and a number of other emergency respondents. It includes, well, so 821 civilian, which includes 59 police and other emergency responders, and 368 military, which sort of corroborates the story that it didn't actually take them seven hours to get onto the scene, but that they were just getting uh, their ass eaten, so to speak, by Hamas, because that's a lot of people to lose on a single day, right? You're talking almost 400, 368, you're pushing the upper limits of the 300s. And when you put it when you put it together, the 851, the 368 military, civilian, 851 civilian, 368 military, you do get 1,219 uh, deaths, total deaths. So it does add up to what we've been told that the new number is, because it used to be 1,400, it got revised down to 1,200, right? And then it gives, when you break it down a little further, it gives us a ratio of roughly 3.3 to 1. So for every 3.3 people who died, and of course you can't really have a third of a person, but bear with me here. For, for every 3.3 people who died in the Hamas attack, one was a soldier. Meaning that nearly a third of Israel's total losses from October the 7th were military, right? Which the military would be viable targets in a military operation viable targets because again you're at war of course your military is going to get attacked by the enemy's military so right off the bat we have to start calling into question the oh it was so terrible it was a, such a tragedy it was a slaughter of civilians and and there was just no justification for this a third of the losses were military That just dispels this entire, at least for me, because this is a really shocking statistic to sort of just sit on, that Hamas attacks these savage barbarians and, well, one, they killed nearly 400 of your soldiers in a, a, a single attack, a single raid, right? That's shocking. And then what's also shocking is that that accounts for a third of your losses. A third of the people who died on October the 7th were legitimate military targets. Now, some people say, oh, everyone in Israel has to do the draft. Everyone has to do con compulsory service. So that technically makes them all combatants. Eh, let's, let's not get too happy. <laughs> if you're in uniform, if you're shooting at them, you're a combatant, uh, which would 
probably technically include the police, but we're just gonna not we're just gonna continue to not include them because I, I I ran the numbers without factoring them in. But you know, should I? so we're we're actually gonna make this uh, worse for Hamas marginally by saying that the sixty officers who probably would have been combatants, we're just not gonna count them as combatants. Those police officers, but yeah, a third of the people who died on October the seventh attack were legitimate military targets. And that is mind blowing. When you think back about all the things we've been told about Hamas, uh, I'm not saying that they're great people now. No, I'm, I'm really not. But that's a rather good ratio to have for a, a savage barbarian fighting force to be on the mark. Like there, it's not the Russians where you're, it's majority military, but that's pretty damn close. Again, for every 3.3 people who died in the in the Hamas attack, which began on October the 7th, for every 3.3 people who died, one was military. That means that the ratio of civilian, dead civilians to military is 2.3 to 1. That's a, it's still bad, granted, you know, preferably the military is the one who's going to take the, the majority losses in a war. But let's also not forget that we haven't seen that ratio, the, the good, quote unquote, good ratio of more military dying than civilian. We have not seen that ratio in wars since World War One, And that's what makes the Russians uh, war in Ukraine. It's one of the things I should say that makes it so peculiar and interesting because the Russians are setting a new standard. The Russians are setting the standard now that you can fight a high-intensity modern industrial war and not just slaughter the civilian populace of a country. You can actually fight a modern industrial war and have more military deaths than civilians. You can do it. And the Russians would be, of course, the country to prove it. They're a massive military power going up against the Ukrainians who've been propped up by all of NATO. And yet more significantly more military have died in Ukraine than civilian. They, they're setting a new standard. That standard is still being set now. But if we look at other conflicts other throughout the 20th century and even the early 21st century, it's all been more civilians dying than military ever since World War I. World War I was the last time we saw more military die than civilians. But the fact that Hamas in their attack achieved a, a, two, a, a ratio of just about two civilians for every one soldier, that's really good in the, in the broader context of you know modern warfare. Usually the ratio doesn't get that close, if at all which again is very revealing but again we'll sort of continue to dive into these numbers but that's that was just a, a again a really revealing thing to come across from digging into the numbers of israeli losses i'm not downplaying people who died uh, i'm re i'm really not i'm just it's shocking because judging by what you're told you would think that all 1200 of those people were civilians but a third of them were military. Military is legitimate targets. That's fair game. You're already at war with these people. Hamas is Palestine's military functionally. 
and they came in and mollywhopped nearly 400 of your soldiers, over 400 if you, again, count those police officers, which would lower the ratio from like 3.3 to 1 to like maybe 3.1 to 1, whatever the number is. But that's a good ratio. That's a good ratio. And it's astonishing. And it doesn't match up with what we're told about Hamas. And again, that doesn't mean Hamas or the the greatest guys on earth, because, you know, there's always those people who just are so childish and they can't handle just the slightest bit of nuance when it's when they view something as good versus evil. But we you're watching this podcast. You already know that that we're far beyond talk of good guys, bad guys. I I, I won't even I won't even insult your intelligence by doing that. So we're just going to go on. But it's it's astonishing. It really is. It's even more astonishing when you compare that to Israel's numbers. Now, a report from CNN came out on Wednesday uh, when I was doing all this extrapolating, and it said that Israel had killed around 5,000 Hamas, which, oh, would you look at that, just, just about lines up with the total number of adult males who have died in Gaza since this shit began. Hmm. Ah, I, I wonder where they could have got this 5,000 number from. This is a this is a fucking joke, <laughs> but but let you know let's run with it let's run with it you know for the sake of argument for the sake of argument we'll, we'll just run with it you know perhaps I'm wrong but you know for the sake of the podcast I bring you these numbers, <laughs> but again I wouldn't trust these numbers as far as I could throw a blade of grass. Uh, Israel's own numbers that we've been using, uh, you know, for the back when the death count in Gaza was like around 11,000. The number that Israel put out for the number of, uh, of Hamas, I keep saying number, the, the total number of Hamas that Israel claimed to have killed back when the death tally in Gaza was 11,000, the number Israel put up was 1,500 Hamas. So, 11, 000, so when 11,000 people were dead in Gaza, Israel was claiming to have killed around 1,500 Hamas, 1,500. Now, <laughs> they say that they've killed 5,000 Hamas out of the now, well, uh, 16,000, uh, You can the numbers I was working with back in Wednesday when I pieced this part together have already been outdated and rendered obsolete. But now Israel is claiming to have killed 5,000 out of the, <laughs> out of the 18,000, so I'm just going to go ahead and account for the extra 500 on top of that 1750 well that 17,500 I put up they're claiming to have killed an extra f- I can't take these people seriously so they've gone from 1,500 when the death count in Gaza was 11,000 and then when the death count in Gaza was 16,000 because that's at the time I got the news Israel was claiming to have killed 5,000 Hamas. You see the problem with this? We'll get into the problem, but uh, you just know there is a problem with those numbers. We'll get into it, but but if you if you break it down, you know, 5,000 Hamas out of 16,000 dead Palestinians, which is what Israel's claiming now that they've killed, um, 
you get a 3.2 to 1 ratio of total deaths to supposedly dead Hamas. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, or, or at least that that's what it was until I got the updated numbers because I, I did update the, the numbers going with the for the to account for 17,500 you know the extra thousand and a half people who died since uh Wednesday so it, on Wednesday the ratio that Israel is, is indirectly claiming to have was 3.2 to 1 so for every one Hamas they killed 3.2 civilians died well, well 3.2 uh goodness let me for every <laughs> 3.2 people that died, they claim to have killed one Hamas. Now, with the updated number, 17,500 dead in Gaza, the number would be for every 3.5 people who died, Israel claiming to have killed one Hamas, which gets you uh, a 2.5 to 1 civilians to Hamas ratio. But the casualties are 17,500 now. And again, remember how I, there was a problem with those numbers. You just, you just went from 1,500 to 5,000 when the death count went from 11,000 to 16,000. With the, It's 17,500 now. So according to CNN, because that, that's the, the news source I was reading when they I saw this claim come out that they claimed to have killed 5,000 now. Israel is claiming to have killed... Uh, they, they, they're claiming to have more than tripled the Hamas death tally. And they, they claim to have added 3,500 additional deaths to the, the Hamas death count. When the deaths in Gaza had only gone up by... <laughs> by like about like 5,000 in that same time. Because at the time I was reading this, it was 16,000 dead Palestinians. So the Hamas kill count went up by 3,500 and the total kill count went up by 5,000. You see the problem here. <laughs> On the surface, it might appear to add up because, oh, okay, 3,500 Hamas, 5,000 people were added to the death count. Okay, well, it was it just had to have been all Hamas. Well, it, on the surface, it adds up because technically it does. There's fewer, they claim to have killed fewer Hamas than the total number of people who died. But if we're really looking at this mathematically, it just doesn't add up at all because the ratio was, again, if we go back, the ratio was one Hamas dead for every 6.3 civilians dead in Gaza. Because uh, again, if you if you look back at the 11,000 to 1,500 that they were claiming before, uh, it's 6.3 civilians for every one Hamas that you kill. So one out of every seven people. Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, and actually, as a, as a side note, I, I accidentally fucked up the math in my episodes. Uh, in my episode where I tried to talk about the numbers more in depth, I, I accidentally flood, fludged it and made the numbers better for Israel uh, by claiming it was one in eight. You know, so for every seven civilians that died, I, I basically said that one Hamas died. I, I made the ratio better for them, but it's still bad. But it's actually 
one in seven, so that'd be one Hamas for every 6.3 civilians dead in Gaza. That's what the ratio was right up until 11,000. So you're telling me that now (laughs) you've managed to boost the ratio to an insane degree that you've killed twice as many Hamas as as the total number of civilians who died? Because there's only enough room for 5,000. So if you've killed 3,500, that leaves you with uh, 1,500 to make up for the 5,000. Because from 11,000 to 16,000 is an increase of 5,000. You're claiming to have killed twice as many Hamas as the total as civilians in this short space of time that the numbers went from 11,000 dead in Gaza to 16,000 dead in Gaza. That and the ratio before was only one Hamas out of for every seven people, seven total people. So you've gone from seven, so you've gone from getting one Hamas out of seven people to getting one person out of every two Hamas. The, the numbers just don't add up. It doesn't add up at all. I, I, I don't trust these. Oh, we've killed 5,000 Hamas now. I don't trust those numbers as far as I could throw a blade of grass because why would I? Like, it's uh, it's an insult to my intelligence. <laughs> now we're supposed to believe <laughs> we're supposed to believe now that Israel's racked up more Hamas kills than the total number of additional deaths in Gaza since that time, and that they've magically magically been able to do that without killing damn near any civilians in the process. They they've magically improved their ratios from killing six civilians for every one Hamas to killing two Hamas for every one civilian. That's a massive change. I don't know how they magically managed to do that. And I don't know why they weren't doing that from the start. They could have saved themselves so much trouble. Um, uh, yeah. And, and remember they, they and the Biden administration keep trying to downplay the Gaza death tally by saying it's overstated. You, you, you know how Biden keeps saying, oh, I don't trust because it's coming from uh, Palestine. It's coming from uh, Hamas-controlled Palestine. The, the numbers are fudged, man. The, the numbers are artificially high. So if we if we take into account that, if we assume that they're telling the truth and that the numbers are, are fudged and overstated, what, you, you're, what you're saying is that you've supposedly killed so many Hamas that you've outstripped the growth of these supposedly overinflated numbers. Because if the numbers are overinflated, uh, then you're already working within, uh, you're barely within the margins here. Like from 11,000 to 16,000 is 5,000 people. You're claiming to have killed an additional 3,500 Hamas. If the numbers are overinflated, then depending on the degree to which you believe these numbers are overinflated, you have killed more Hamas. You, so you've killed Hamas so fast that you've outstripped the growth of what you claim to be overinflated numbers. You see how this just doesn't add up at all to the truth. Not to, it certainly doesn't add up to the truth. It adds up to a lie, though. I don't trust these numbers as far as I could throw a blade of grass. And, and isn't it convenient how... The, <laughs> With Israel's new numbers, after pulling off this miracle of military efficiency, isn't it a miracle that the ratio just so happened to make their civilian to military KD ratio almost perfectly even with that of Hamas? 
3.5 to 1 total deaths to Hamas. Just like how Hamas, for every 3.3 total people, for every 3.3 people, one Israeli soldier was killed. Isn't it so strange that the Israelis just magically managed to find a way to even that ratio out? Look, you can believe that if you would like, but I press X to doubt. But now, as we get into the final segment of today's episode, I want to get into some recent articles from both the New York Times and very briefly from an article an article from Haaretz, which is an Israeli publication, uh, because these articles are landmark publications that I believe mark the moment where the PR battle, in at least in the U.S., regarding Israel and its actions in Palestine, may have turned decisively against Israel. And I say that because these stories challenge the core narratives surrounding this latest round of fighting between Israel and Palestine, which for bitch, <laughs> which uh, I say for whatever reason, have ginned up a, a lot more emotion, I'll say. Because uh, uh, this emotion wasn't there during the last round of fighting. This emotion certainly wasn't there when it was just Hamas firing rockets at the Israelis. And it was so and it certainly didn't warrant hours upon hours upon hours of debate and discussion. Uh, it Maybe it did warrant it, but it, it didn't receive it. But there wasn't this much energy for any one of the previous rounds of fighting between Israel and Palestine. And when you see all the, these, these sacred stories of uh, October the 7th, October the 7th, and it's just this, this unquestionable mythos of what happened on October the 7th, and here we are with these articles discussing October the 7th in a way that is not necessarily conducive towards advancing what Israel says happened, and it's certainly not conducive towards making Israel look any better because, and, and what's so important about October the 7th from a, a narrative standpoint, because we, we've gone over the, the military and we've gone over the broader, the, the 10,000 foot view of it's a raid that happened in a war and Israel happened to lose this one. You know, we, we, we've gone over this, but from the narrative standpoint, what makes October the 7th so important is it is from the Israeli, the, the, the Israel simp side, it is their inciting incident that they use to justify doing literally anything, anything Israel does, whether it's bombing civilians in, in Gaza, whether it's ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in the West Bank, but well, and this and that one's more retroactive, using October the seventh retroactively for justification. Whether it's bombing civilians, claiming to be fighting Hamas while you're just bombing civilians, uh putting all of Gaza under siege by cutting them off from water, food, electricity, and medical supplies and fuel, trying to force literal millions of people to flee from Gaza uh, and go into neighboring countries. And they have a, they have a plan. There's talk that they want to try to try to get the Palestinians to flee to Europe because the Europeans have open borders and they'll let them in, you know, 
all this stuff, all of this is excused in the minds of the Israel simp by what happened on October the 7th, because October the 7th was so heinous and so evil and so barbaric and savage, and it, it, nothing justifies what happened on October the 7th. October the 7th isn't to be questioned. It isn't to be analyzed. We're not, we're not supposed to ask questions about how exactly the Israeli military failed to see this coming, and we have more evidence now that they knew that this attack, that they knew definitively that this attack was coming. It wasn't just the Egyptians who tipped them off. Their own intelligence, apparently, caught wind of the plan a year ahead of time. We'll get into that in just a minute. But October the 7th has been the linchpin of the Israel simp justification, the preemptive and slash retroactive justification for everything Israel does. Preemptive in that things that Israel hasn't done yet are justified in the minds of the Israel simps by October the 7th. It was so terrible. So Hamas, uh, savage barbarians. Yeah. And retroactive as in everything that Israel did to the Palestinians prior to this round of fighting is also justified by October the 7th. Because Hamas is so, can't you see how evil and how savage and barbaric Hamas is? Can't you see that they, they kill children and rape women? They're, they're so evil, okay? It doesn't matter that there were things happening before October the 7th. You can see now what Israel's been fighting because of what happened on October the 7th. October the 7th is a very important day for the narrative of this war and for the justifications involved. But here we have two stories questioning this sacred moment, uh, sacred in a, a, a negative connotation, because it, it, a really bad thing happened, but you're not allowed to question the, the specifics and the details of that bad thing. So sacred in that light, not sacred as in, oh, we revered. No. This sacred story of October the 7th, this article from the New York Times and a little bit from Haaretz, are now calling into question what exactly happened on October the 7th. And we've already gone over uh, some of the, the reports now coming out that Israel may or may not have fired on their own people, which is, which is another thing I wanted to get into back in the previous segment because we were talking about the numbers. When we have some concrete numbers about how many people exactly may have been killed by Israel's own, by Israel's own military, if we get those numbers, I'm sure they'll come out eventually if the story is true. If not, well, the numbers stand where they stand. But if it's true that Israel killed its own people, we'll have to we'll have to revise the, the kill count to account for to account for the number of Israelis killed by the Israeli military. Because those have to be disqualified from the Hamas kill count because Hamas didn't kill those people. Hamas's ratio is already one military for every two civilians they killed. How many civilians did Israel's military kill? When you look at those cars that were burnt out, if we assume that all of them were burnt out because they got lit up by an Israeli Apache, well, that's uh, at least 200 people. I won't speculate too much into that. I already speculated on it before. Now we just have to wait for some numbers to come out. But the sacred story that is October the 7th, the linchpin, the epicenter of the Israel, the pro-Israel narrative, the retroactive and preemptive justification for everything that Israel does, October the 7th, 
is now being called into question. That was in the them firing on their own people was just the first that I've seen. But now we have uh, these articles from New York Times and Haaretz. And it's truly astonishing. It's truly incredible. And with the speed at which the the Israelis are just losing this PR battle. Like I've, I've talked about how they're not even bothering. They're not even defending themselves on the diplomatic front. They're, they're not even trying. The, the Iranians and the Arabians are just running circles around them, holding joint summits between the Arab and Islamic world. And the Israelis have nothing to say. They're, they're not doing anything on the diplomatic front to cover their ass. And, but here they are losing the PR battle as well in record time. It's astonishing to watch because I, I didn't think that we'd get information like this this early on, and certainly not from the professional liars, the pro, the propaganda press. But we starting with Haaretz because it's uh, uh, this is brief. Uh, the information I got from it is brief. Uh, Haaretz says that Israel lied, and I'm I'm sort of shortening it down because I want to get into the New York Times article because I think that's. A big one too, but Haaretz basically debunked a lot of these, these you know, uh, again, sacred stories that came out of October the 7th. Oh, the, the 40 beheaded babies. Oh, Hamas was burning babies alive. Oh my God. Hamas gave a forced abortion to a woman, cut a child out of her stomach and stabbed him right in front of her. <laughs> these savage barbarian animals, you know, all these stories. They hung babies. It's all about babies. It's all about babies. Um, but remember, we're not supposed to have babies because of the climate. You know, you're just you know taking a, a, you know another thirty thousand foot step back. You know, with you know since all this focus is on babies, but you know these people really want depopulation. But all these these terrible things that we we're told were happened. Here comes an Israeli publication saying that Israel lied about beheaded babies and lied about burnt babies and that article from Haaretz damn if only I swear if I had the name of that article I would put it up I would give it because it's a good thing to be reading it's a very good read uh but I'll I'll at the very least point you to Jimmy Dore because he he does read over the article uh in real time so I'll point you to Jimmy Dore but this is huge. You have an Israeli publication debunking this myth about beheaded and burned babies on October the 7th. About a baby being a forced abortion where the baby is cut out of the mother's stomach and then killed in front of the mother. And these are stories that have been repeated, that have been fed to us on repeat, I should say by Israeli ministers, the Israeli president, prime, well, prime minister, uh, I, I almost said Naftali Bennett, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. These are stories that have been repeated to us by fucking Biden and people in our own U.S. administration. Uh, I wouldn't even get into the Israel Simpson <laughs> on the internet. Everybody who has taken a stance on the side of Israel has repeated at one point or another these mantras about these atrocities and here comes an Israeli publication of all places saying that this literally didn't happen, that there were atrocities, but that these things specifically didn't happen. No beheaded babies, no burned babies, no forced abortion babies, 
And they say, and this is again shocking. This Haaretz article says that only one baby died on October the seventh as a direct result of the Hamas attack. One. And it's like, are you are you serious? Now, before I move on to the New York Times article, right? Before I move on to the New York Times article, just that bit of information alone that we now have access to disqualifies any excuse for supporting Israel. Because now we can say definitively that Israel lied. Israel lied to us, their chief backer and financial supporter, to get money and weapons out of us, to get troop movements out of us, because we moved two carrier battle groups over into this place to defend them. They lied to get money, weapons, and support, and sympathy from us. They lied to get those things. They lied about beheaded babies. They lied about burned babies. They lied about the all these atrocities that we were told Hamas committed. All these atrocities which turned October the 7th into this, this uh, again, this sacred story that you're not allowed to question. It, it was elevated from another raid in a war, a, a, a battle that Israel lost this time around. It was elevated from that to this moral indemnity on, on mankind that this was ever allowed to happen and therefore uh, we have to be able to we have to be given a blank check we have to give israel a blank check to let them wipe hamas off the face of the earth that's what this they lied to us to get that they do not deserve a dime from us anymore you're going to lie to us to get this support it's not like they had to lie either because <laughs> lord knows the day these damn Republicans <laughs> would have given them the money anyway. Lord knows that these neocons were itching for a war anyway. You could have you could have asked for all that off the merits of you being attacked and you being our ally. I still would have had an issue with it anyway because I don't I don't consent to having the alliance. But I'm one guy. You know the U.S. government would have given you the money and the weapons anyway, even after we exhausted ourselves with Ukraine. But you had the audacity to lie to us about this. You don't deserve anything from me anymore. You didn't deserve shit from me to begin with, but <laughs> you don't deserve anything anymore. I owe you nothing. And from this moment onwards... If we continue to back and support Israel, we are chumps. We are chumps who enjoy being abused because that's abuse to lie to someone and then to try to blackmail them into giving you money and, and, and things that you want and need by saying, oh, I, I, my circumstances are so bad. It, it's like those people who stand on the freeway uh, talking about how they're, 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 they're homeless, the fake homeless, mind you. There are homeless people, but I'm talking about the fake people who who literally have cars and they drive home after they collect your money and they have those signs and there's always two or three of them on the on the on the freeway. There's never just one of them asking for money. 
you know, it's always, oh, my, my, my family, I have three kids and, and they, they walk with the limp to try to get the sympathy. And, and then when the day is over, they walk a couple blocks down to their car and they drive off home. That's what this is like. That's what this is like. And if we continue to give Israel aid after they lied to us, because again, they didn't need to lie. They would have gotten this shit anyway, and we'd all just be pissed anyway. But they lied. They deserve to be cut off from everything now. Military support, military cooperation deal, financial support, they deserve to be cut off from all of it. At least that's what a country who had some integrity and some self-respect would do. Will the Israel simps do that? No, not until the bitter end when Israel is exposed for the apartheid state that it is in an undeniable manner. Not until October the 7th is broken down painstakingly detail by detail will people come around to something close to the position I have. But man, isn't that just so disrespectful? lying to us and then expecting us to give you money and weapons you know it from me but that's just off the information we got from Haaretz, the israeli publication again which is shocking uh, shocking is my favorite word for this episode it's the word of the day word of the week i suppose shocking but that is just the tip of this iceberg because we also have this new york times article and i'm gonna go over this one a little bit more uh, extensively this New York Times article saying Israel knew Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago. That's the title. Which is mind-blowing. Like beyond shocking, that's mind-blowing. They they lead with that. Israel knew Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago. And the first paragraph of this article, right underneath the title of the article, says, quote, Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October the 7th uh, terrorist attack more than a year before it happened. Documents, emails, and interviews show. But Israeli military and intelligence officials dismissed the plan as aspirational, considering it too difficult for Hamas to carry out, end quote. Wow. Wow. So you've lied to us to get weapons and money after deliberately being derelict. Uh, uh, what, what, what do you even call that? Dereliction of duty? Uh, uh, to the highest degree? Deliberate ignorance? What do you what, what do you call what do you call knowing? Because I've been on their ass. I've been on Israel's ass about being tipped off from the by the Egyptian government that this was going to pop off, and you still not doing anything. You have a wall around them. You're monitoring these people constantly, at least in the Gaza Strip, which is where the attack emanated from. You're watching these people constantly. Nothing gets past you. You have the vaunted most ad advanced and intelligent intelligence service on the face of the earth and you don't see these people coming you don't see uh, dudes loading up in the pickup trucks and just driving up to the boat you don't see that it, it, 
I've been on Israel's ass about that since day one, right? Because that enough was sketchy to me. But now we come to find that not only did the Egyptians tell you this is going to happen, but we have the added layer of you knowing what the battle plan was going to be. And the Egyptians said, hey, you, hey, the Hamas might be attacking you sometime soon. Maybe you should be on high alert. So you know what the battle plan is. And you're tipped off that this that this attack might happen sometime soon. You know what the battle plan is going to be. There should have been no reason for October the 7th to happen in any way, shape, or form close to what actually transpired on that day. Hamas should never have been able to get past the wall. And yet, in spite of knowing what the battle plan was, in spite of knowing that the attack was coming... Uh, sooner rather than later because you got tipped off by the Egyptians and in spite of monitoring these people 24-7 you failed and uh, the October the 7th attack was allowed to happen now going now uh, even if we sort of dismiss some of the new knowledge we're, we're getting coming out about October the 7th and take it at the face value that the Israel simps would like us to take it at as this atrocity on mankind you knew the battle plan and you were alerted beforehand that the attack was coming by Egypt. You are a failure. October the 7th at that point is every bit as much your fault that it is Hamas. You knew it was going to come. You knew you had an idea of when it was going to come because the Egyptians the Egyptians tipped you off. You knew what was going to happen, how it was going to happen, and you got an idea of when it was going to happen. You should have been on high alert. You you're, you have all these cameras and all these drones monitoring these people. Everything they do, you're monitoring and spying on them, and you didn't see this coming. You are a failure. Is The Israeli government, as far as I was concerned, and certainly as far as I'm concerned now, is every bit as culpable in October the 7th as Hamas was. They knew the battle plan? Like, come on. And again, when are the Israel simps going to hold Israel accountable? Like, we, we could talk about, as a matter of fact, we already did talk about how the Palestine simps can't hold Hamas accountable for shit. They can't even own up to the idea that calling for genocide would be harassment and bullying. Hello. These are the heads of the, our Ivy League colleges. We are, we know, we know that none of these people are going to hold their sides accountable. The Palestine simps aren't going to hold Hamas accountable. The Israel simps aren't going to hold the Israeli government accountable. But there needs to be accountability. You knew what the battle plan was a year ahead of time. And you were tipped off by the Egyptian government before the attack actually commenced that something was going to happen? You're the problem. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And, and it's equally as mind-blowing and equally as frustrating, the lack of accountability. 
because no one simping for Israel is going to say, hey, you knew about this. You you knew about this. You know how it was going to go. Are you going to hold them accountable? The only person I know who's even talking about accountability for the Israeli government is, is Jimmy Dore and Jackson Hinkle. But they're not Israel simps. They're Palestine simps. It's, oh my goodness, bro. Let me, let me continue with this article. It's brief, so I, we can get over it pretty quickly. But wow, dude. The article then goes on to say, quote, the approximately 40-page document, and they're talking about the battle plan, the approximately 40-page document, which the Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, they, they, so the, the name given to the battle plan is Jericho Wall, uh, and this is the same exact plan that was carried out during Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, which is the name that Hamas gave to the attack on Israel. So when I say Jericho Wall, think the attack on October the 7th, think Al-Aqsa Flood, right? It's all the same thing. This is just the name that the Israelis gave to the battle plan a year ahead of the actual attack. 40 pages. But yeah, uh, again, quote, the approximately 40-page document, which the Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to the deaths of about 1,200 people. The translated document, which was reviewed by the New York Times, did not set a date for the attack, which is irrelevant because they were tipped off by the Egyptians prior to this attack anyway. The the uh, the translated document did not re- uh, the translated document which was reviewed by the New York Times did not set a date for the attack, but described a methodical assault designed to overwhelm the fortifications around the Gaza Strip, take over Israeli cities, and storm key military bases, including a division headquarters which is exactly what happened on October the 7th. The article continues. Hamas followed the blueprint with shocking precision. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the outset of the attack, drones to knock out the security cameras, and automated machine guns along the borders, and gunmen to pour into Israel en masse in paragliders and motorcycles and on foot and in pickup trucks, all of which happened on October 7th. You you, you know that meme where it's uh it's Soldier Boy talking about how Drake copied him and he and he's in the he's in the studio with fucking Charlemagne. And he goes, he copied my whole fucking flow. Word for word, bar for bar. You, you know what I mean? That's literally word for word, bar for bar, point by point. Hamas followed the attack plan point by point. And you let this happen. You let this happen. The, the, no, no, you let this happen. It's, there's no excuse for this. There's no excusing this. There's no excusing this. Israel, let this happen. Because there's, there's no way you know what the battle plan is and you're tipped off that the battle is about to commence ahead of time by the Egyptians. There's no way. 
There's no way that you don't put two and two together. Oh, it's too ambitious for them. Firing off rockets and then storming the border with paragliders and motorcycles? Using drones to knock out cameras? Use rock you already know that they have rockets. They bombard you with rockets all the fucking time. You already know they have access to drones. You already know that they can drive a motorcycle and a pickup truck. That's all they have in Gaza. What are you talking about? Too ambitious. Oh my goodness, bro. The article also says, quote, the plan also included details about the location and size of the Israeli military forces, communication hubs, and other sensitive information, raising questions about how Hamas gathered its intelligence and whether there were leaks inside the Israeli security establishment. So Hamas has better intelligence gathering than Mozad because they figured all this out about you, but you couldn't figure out they were about to attack you in spite of monitoring them 24-7. The article ends saying that, quote, the document circulated widely among Israeli military and intelligence leaders, but experts, experts, determined that an attack of that scale and ambition was beyond Hamas's capabilities, according to documents and officials. It is unclear whether Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu or other top political leaders saw the document as well, end quote. Again, wow. Wow. And no one's going to hold them accountable. No one in our government, none of these talking heads who've sided with Israel, no one. The Israelis might, but that's because they already had issues with Netanyahu to begin with. There were protests in the streets about his, his judicial reforms just prior to the outbreak of this war. And all in all, with, with this, with all this information coming out about how October the 7th is exact isn't exactly what we were told it was. And now this information coming out that, oh, they knew what the plan, the battle plan was a year ahead of time. I just can't help but think back to what the Tate brothers said, specifically Andrew Tate, at the very beginning of this conflict. Because he, like myself, questioned how exactly Mozad dropped the ball here. Something that no one else seems very interested in doing. Even now, months into the conflict, with Israel clearly being on the ascendancy here, well, at least at least on the, the quote-unquote battlefield, because mm, not much of a battlefield when you're just bombing civilians. But way back at the beginning, Andrew Tate brought up how regimes who want to consolidate power over their people, which if you're looking at Benjamin Netanyahu that way, who was in a bit of a political crisis, because he was, there was a lot of opposition to his uh, attempted judicial reforms. If you're looking, if you are the regime and you're looking to gain control over your people, you will create insecurity. You will 
create an unsafe environment so that you can justify giving yourself more power to make it quote unquote safe again. By creating an unsafe environment, you can get people to turn to you to make it safe again, and you can simply take more power in the process. And the, the key thing being there to enable the security environment to become unsafe enough to justify needing more power to make it safe again. They knew the battle plan. They were tipped off by the Egyptians. They still didn't stop this. So we know that the intelligence service knew about this attack. It's not a matter of how did you drop the ball? You knew about the attack. You knew what the battle plan was. You were tipped off by the Egyptian government ahead of time that this attack was coming. So it's not like, oh, it caught you by surprise. No, you were told that an attack was coming and you had the battle plan. You chose not to respond. You chose not to preempt this. You chose to let this happen. You chose to let the security environment become unsafe. Now, for what reasons exactly? I can't assert that. I can't, I can't, I cannot assert that. What exactly they allowed this to happen for, I don't know. But what I can assert is that with that much information at your disposal, you allowed this to happen. This isn't an accident. This isn't a, uh, this isn't even a tragedy. This is a crime because a tragedy is a bad thing that happens from everyone doing what they logically should have been doing. And it just ends badly for everybody. That's a tragedy. When everybody does what they logically should have done and how they, when everybody responds to a situation, how they logically should, and it just creates a bad thing. That's a tragedy. There is no logic behind having Hamas's battle plan and not acting on it. There is no logic. There's no recourse behind being tipped off that an attack is gonna come from the Egyptian government and still not taking any preparations. That's not reacting how you would logically react to a situation. That's you deliberately going out of your way to make yourself abnormally vulnerable to these to an attack like this that and, and considering how much that we now know that the israeli government and mozad and the idf knew prior to this attack considering how much we now know that they knew that they chose not to act on this is a crime not a tragedy it's a crime not a tragedy so when we talk about how terrible October the 7th was, when we talk about the savagery and the barbarity and how all, all these people died because of Hamas, well, now we can't just say it was Hamas anymore. Granted, if you're on this podcast, you weren't saying that anyway. Like, <laughs> but we, you can't just blame it on Hamas anymore because the Israeli government allowed this to happen, which means that they are culpable and accountable for everybody who died. 
every Israeli who died on October the 7th, the Israeli government is responsible for. They are accomplices to the crime. They stood by and watched as Hamas came up to the border, overcame the border, and then started slaughtering their own civilian, their own people. That is a crime, not a tragedy. So when we talk about October the 7th as this terrible day and the, the worst day for the Jews since uh, the Holocaust, we also have we also have to factor in that the Israeli government, the government of the Jewish state, was culpable in the wor- in making that worst day since the Holocaust possible. And for a lot of people, that's going to be one hell of a bitter pill to swallow. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I have got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and my geopolitical podcast. My lovely listeners, the world is changing. Narratives are being questioned. Multipolar world is expanding. The Belt and Road is being abandoned in some places and is expanding in other places. 2024 is going to be a wild ride, folks. We're almost there. We're not there yet, but it's going to be very wild. But no matter how the world changes, no matter what happens, we will have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.